Congregation of the Lord, would you turn with me again in Luke chapter 1 and begin reading at verse 54. Luke chapter 1 and verse 54. He hath holpen his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And Mary abode with her about three months and returned to her own house. Well, after Mary concluded her words of praise unto God, she remained with Elizabeth for three months that we are told. It was surely a time of fellowship, of prayer, and of spiritual strengthening. And sometimes the Lord does that before he would bring one of his servants through a period of difficulty and trial. He first ensures that, that he or she will receive the strengthening to his or her faith that is necessary to endure those trials. And in the year to come after that meeting with uh, Elizabeth, surely Mary went through a great many things. She went through having to give birth to her own first child, or any woman, that's not a small thing. But more than that, she did so as a woman who was only betrothed to her husband and Surely that would have generated some questions and even some accusations from her family. Even Joseph himself needed a revelation from God to understand what had happened. But other things, surely no one could have expected that there would be a decree from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be taxed and that this woman, just as she was about to give birth, would have to make a long and a difficult journey to a city called Bethlehem. And who could have predicted that even the king of Judah, King Herod, would seek the life of her child and seek to destroy this child and that she and her husband would have to flee to Egypt. She had no conception of these things, but here and now the Lord is providing for the strengthening of her faith, so that when such things do happen, she will be trusting in the Lord. And I would put to you, congregation, we do not know what the next year will hold. We come here at the very first day of 2024. Who can say what the next year holds in store for you and for me? Who knows which one of us will not be alive at the end of this coming year. Who knows even whether we will endure trials the likes of which we've never encountered before. We look at the state of the world and the instability of so many of the political dynamics around the world, and who can say what will befall even our own nation? Surely, it is a great custom and a worthy and an edifying thing that the people of God should begin this new year 
um, in his house among the people of God under the preaching of the word. Should it not be our desire that these things of which Mary spoke of would also be to the shoring up of our faith? The things which she speaks of here, even in these final verses, are things that ought to serve for our instruction, maturing our faith, getting us deeper into the word of God and a greater acquaintance with the purposes of God for his people. And our desire is that this text, by his grace, would serve to that purpose for you and for me. We'll consider verses 54 and 55 in particular under this theme, help for the true Israel. Help for the true Israel. And we'll consider a gracious covenant, a chosen people, a holy calling. Well, here's where the King James language is, is a bit different than what a modern translation would say. Halpen is not an ordinary word that we're used to, but it simply means help. He hath helped his servant Israel, we could say. But in the Greek, it's actually a very rare uh, Greek word, and it's only used by this gospel writer, Luke. And Luke uses this word twice in his whole writings, once here and once in description of um, the Apostle Paul. Paul gives a summary of his own ministry in Acts 25, verse 32 and to 35. And I'm going to read those verses just because it's one of my favorite portions of Scripture as Paul explains his own perspective on his ministry and seeks to build up the church in Ephesus and the elders. There, Acts 25, verse 32, And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all that which are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them which were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak, support the weak, and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. In the word support the weak, it has uh, the same Greek word as in our text. It has the idea of embracing someone in order to protect them, in order to nurture them, in order to support them. Yes, this is the character of Paul that he commends to every Christian because it's the character of Christ. Christ gives of himself. And so also the Christian must give and in giving support the weak. And it's translated help here for in the whole context of it, you see how the support and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he gives unto his people, it is that which rescues them, helps them in the face of the attacks of the devil and of the devil's children. We saw last night about this great reversal where God will judge the enemies of his church and help his church. 
And so we see a continuation here. And so we see here in verse 54 and 55, he hath helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Where we would speak of the help that God affords in the gospel of Christ Jesus. We are brought face to face with the reality of the doctrine of the covenant. The covenant. And, and I am afraid that sometimes the covenant of grace is spoken of in Reformed churches far too little. Maybe we speak about it just to make sure that our children don't become Baptists, or we speak about it if we get in an argument with Baptists, but it's not in the Bible so that we'll argue with Baptists, whatever benefits that may come from that. No, the, the doctrine of the covenant of grace, we affirm it, we teach it, we embrace it, because it is foundational to mature Christian faith and life. The doctrine of the covenant is set forth here in this word of praise given from Mary because it ties together the whole Bible. Were we to be ignorant of God's covenant in Christ Jesus, we would be ignorant of a great many things in the Bible. What did Jesus Christ say we're called to do? We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, mind, and strength. I hope you take that seriously. And also, if we would meditate and consider something of the doctrine of the covenant of grace, you would apply your minds to it, knowing that it will lead you to love God more if you are truly a Christian and it's rightly received by you. This is what is being spoken of in these verses. He spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. What could it be that he is referring to? Well, children, if you've been uh, attending Sunday school in this church, you know that Deacon Monster and myself have been teaching you about the book of Genesis. Genesis. And some of the words that Mary uses here, we know are from the book of Genesis. In Genesis 17, in particular, it's pretty clear this is what she has in mind in that uh, encounter of the Lord with Abraham in Genesis 17. And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect and I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Notice in verse 7 as well, I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Surely we can see the direct connection. Mary's referring to this. 55 of Luke 1, And he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. The patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are spoken to her 
by her as her fathers, not because children. They were their direct fathers, as though uh, they, Abraham was Mary's uh, father directly, but because the uh, ancestry of the entire Jewish nation arose from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And also because through them were all the promises of God's covenant to his people. It's extremely important. Extremely important. People might say, well, you know, the Old Testament's so complicated, it's so big, there's so many things to remember. We'll just stick with a simple book like Luke, and we can simply have a New Testament doctrine. But the New Testament points to the Old. We can't understand the New if we don't understand the Old. And so we have the covenant with Abraham set forth here. And here is the point at which controversy will emerge. People will say, well, surely that covenant with Abraham was not something that really concerns us. Wasn't it just with the physical descendants of Abraham, the Jews, according to the flesh? Wasn't it just about this, that there had to be a Messiah? He had to be born from someone or other. And so, as it happened, he was born from the line of Abraham, And what is the whole covenant with Abraham about? Well, just ensuring that the descendants of Jesus will not be snuffed out, but they will continue to exist until such time that Mary could be born, and then in turn such time at which Christ could be born of her. That would be one very superficial and false way to understand him. Surely, at this point in the Gospel of Luke, the, the covenant with Abraham would not be highlighted if it was not of direct relevance to Christians and Christianity. Indeed, we look elsewhere in the Bible, and I just want to take you to two chapters in the New Testament. And I would say you probably should be familiar with these two chapters if you want to have a good grounding in the doctrine of the covenant of grace. The two chapters are Galatians 3 and Romans 4. Galatians 3 and Romans 4. But the first one, Galatians 3, I'm just going to read two verses from that chapter, verses 8 and 9 of Galatians 3, where we read in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen or the Gentiles through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Those are the words we read in Genesis 17. In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with Abraham, with faithful Abraham. So Paul's an apostle and he's teaching to Christians what it means to be a Christian. And what he's saying is that this covenant with Abraham is fulfilled also in the believing Christians right now. It was not just about the Jews, but that all nations would be blessed with him. And so it is. The same chapter refers to believers, whether Jew or Gentile, as the children of Abraham. But even aside from those details, the verse I just read in verse 8 should really stand out. Because uh, Paul says there that those words spoken in thee shall all nations be blessed was the gospel, the gospel. 
preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, And thee shall all nations be blessed. Sometimes we get very complicated. What is the covenant of grace? Is it this? Is it that? Very simply, it's the gospel. The gospel and the covenant of grace set forth the same realities about salvation in Jesus Christ. We can speak about it by way of promise. We can speak about it by way of requirement that there be belief in Christ. But however we're going to uh, define it, it's good that we see that it is going to bring us to no other place than the realities set forth in the gospel. So that was the first text I wanted to show you, but also Romans 4. Romans 4, and we'll read three verses there, not expounding them exhaustively, but just to get you a sense of how important this is. Romans 4, verse 9. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe. Though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. So again, referring to Genesis 17, where circumcision was given as the sign of the covenant to Abraham and to his seed. God would be a God to them and to his seed after them. And so Abraham and his seed both received the sign of the covenant. And what is that all about? Well, it's a, as he says, a sign and a seal of the righteousness of the faith. What faith would that be? Well, read all of Romans 4. It's very clearly the very same faith that every believer has. Faith in Jesus. Faith in the gospel. So what is all this point about covenant theology? It's simply this. It's going to mature your faith in the gospel as you see how that is unfolded, not just from Matthew to Revelation, but from Genesis to Revelation. Now, the whole Bible is all about Christ. That's really the impoverishment of so many churches today. Ultimately, they don't really believe in two testaments. They don't sing the Psalms. They don't read the law. And they don't understand the covenant. And all those things are related, you see. You don't have the covenant. And you would begin to say, why do we want to read the law of Moses? Isn't that just for the old covenant? Isn't that just for the Jews? Let's just do away with it. Why would we sing the Psalms? After those are, after all, that's for the Jews. That's for the old covenant. Well, the answer would be this. That covenant was no different, you see, no different than the covenant which we ourselves possess by faith in Jesus. And where God would be a God to us and to our seed after him in Christ Jesus. So, you want to just have something to really write down and to consider, the main thing to take from here is that the covenant is one. It's one. One, we say, in substance, in what it really means, what what really matters about it. It's all about Christ. It's all about the gospel. 
And so whatever else may change about God's dealings with his people, this is going to be constant. Christ is there and he's received in faith. And that brings me to something else I want to speak about this gracious covenant. That substance is one because the substance is Christ. The substance is Christ. You see how uh, she puts it here. He hath halpen his servant Israel, remembrance of his mercy, as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. What is Mary doing? Is she changing the subject? From the great display of God's grace in the coming of Jesus Christ, of him being born of the Virgin Mary, of being the God-man, one person and two natures, divine and human, inseparably united in our Savior, is that a different thing than what was spoken to the fathers concerning this covenant? Well, I think that even the prophets would teach us otherwise. The prophets... The prophets, they speak of the coming of Christ as the fulfillment of the promises given in the covenant to Abraham. Consider the prophecy of Malachi, chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall be suddenly come to his temple." Even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like a fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Lephi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering of righteousness. I want to just focus on that word in verse 1, the messenger of the covenant. You read the whole chapter, even listen to what I've just read. It's all about Jesus. He is the one who will indeed come in the judgment of fire upon the enemies of God, but also to refine and purify the worship of his people. It could be about none other than Christ. And yet he is the messenger of the covenant. What? Possibly could Malachi be referring to, if not that covenant which he and all the other prophets were familiar, the covenant given to their fathers, the covenant given to Abraham. The covenant has as its substance Christ coming as the Savior to redeem. We see it in the prophet Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 5, which so beautifully speaks of the coming of Christ. Thus saith God the Lord, he that created the heavens and stretcheth them out, he that spreadeth forth the earth, and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth breath unto the people upon it, and the spirit to them that walk therein. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people and for a light of the Gentiles to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. Christ here, not only spoken of as the messenger of the covenant, but as the covenant itself. 
and give thee the Messiah for a covenant of the people. The covenant is about Christ. But more than that, Christ in one sense is the covenant. He's given as the covenant of grace. For all that the covenant of grace is about is this, Christ Jesus and his salvation. This is why he is spoken of as the mediator of the covenant or as the head of the covenant because he himself communicates all blessings of the covenant. The covenant, if it is about anything, it is about bringing us to Christ. And so it was also in the days of Abraham. Abraham, Jesus says, delighted to see my day. And so... All the promises given to the fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, are about this. I want to just read a little bit from the Westminster Larger Catechism. And I would hope that every head of household here, if you're called by God to instruct your wife and children with sound doctrine, really should have a copy of the Westminster Standards. They're not hard to come by. They very much complement our own confessions And on this matter, there's a very helpful phrase about the covenant of grace in the larger catechism. Let me read a bit from question 33 and following. Was the covenant of grace always administered after one and the same manner? Was it always just the same way that God's grace was administered through his covenant? Answer, the covenant of grace was not always administered after the same manner, but the administrations of it under the Old Testament were different from those under the New. How was the covenant of grace administered under the Old Testament? The covenant of grace was administered under the Old Testament by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Passover, and other types and ordinances, which did all for... uh, for signify Christ then to come and were for that time sufficient to build up the elect in faith and the promised Messiah by whom they then had full remission of sin and eternal salvation. How is the covenant of grace administered under the New Testament? Under the New Testament, when Christ the substance was exhibited, The same covenant of grace was and still is to be administered in the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper in which grace and salvation are held forth in more fullness, evidence, and efficacy to all nations. Very helpful. And you see how where the substance is one, it's all about salvation in Christ, yet we can say that the administration of it is different. The believer under the Old Testament, what did they have? They had the promises of the prophets. They had circumcision. They had the Passover. They had the sacrifices. But these were all not a different religion, but the same religion which we profess and believe, the religion in Christ Jesus. It was sufficient, you see, in that time, to build up the faith of God's elect people. They looked at that Passover lamb as the lamb was killed and the blood was drenched over the doorposts upon the Passover 
uh, ceremony and for the believers they looked upon that and saw that Christ Jesus was what that was all about that he who was to come would save his people from their sins this is how we're to read the Psalms this is how we're to read the prophets this is how we're to read uh, Genesis Exodus Leviticus all of it we're to see how all of this was ordained to bring them to the same knowledge of the righteousness of Christ Jesus received in faith which the preaching of the word today and the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism brings us to today this is a right understanding this is founded upon the word of God. If we do not give attention to this, we are likely to be just babies in our spiritual walk. We're likely to still not become mature in being mighty in the scriptures. We need congregation to give attention to this glorious doctrine of the covenant. But I would speak not only of a gracious covenant, but also a chosen people. Look again at what Mary says. He hath helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. If the new covenant in Christ, which is in substance identical to the covenant given to Abraham, because it's all about him and his salvation, here would be the question, why does she refer to God's servant Israel. Isn't that really the point of what we read in our scripture reading today from Romans 9? That Paul was in anguish and great sorrow because the great number of his fellow Israelites had not received Christ as their Messiah and Lord. Isn't that also the case today? The great majority of the Jewish people, Israel according to the flesh, reject Christ. So was it also in the days of Christ. The great number of the people did not receive him. They were among the crowds that said, crucify him, crucify him. Even after his resurrection, you see that the Pharisees and the scribes, they seek to resist the gospel. They seek to persecute the true Christians. And indeed, this culminates in a terrible judgment upon the nation of Israel in 70 AD as the nation and the kingdom and the city of Jerusalem and the temple are all smashed under the Roman legions in uh, fulfillment of Christ's prophecies to them. So we could ask the question, is there really indeed help for his servant Israel? Well, in the one sense, of course, we could say, of course, of course. It was not because Christ was one who could not save Israel, that Israel was judged. It is not because Christ is not full of mercy that they did not find salvation in him, that he not lovingly beckoned them and say, come ye who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. No, it had nothing to do with his uh, failure to proclaim to them the fullness of his grace and pardon. No, but we may also say this, that it was not only just an offer to help, but an actual help that was bestowed. The embrace of Christ's love, the God, love of God in Christ, did not just offer to help Israel, it actually helped Israel. 
Israel indeed received perfect salvation in Christ. Not one of the true Israel was lost. That is really the better sense which to take it. Not that Mary here is referring to everyone who was the seed of Abraham according to the flesh. No, she's referring to the Israel of the Spirit, the Israel of promise. Listen to what Dr. John Gill says. Israel spoken here, meaning not the natural posterity of Jacob or Israel in general, but the elect of God among them. For, not all, for all were not Israel, which were of Israel, and not them only, but also the chosen ones among the Gentiles, who with the former make up the whole Israel of God. In a spiritual and mystical sense, they are the Israel God has chosen, redeemed, and calls by his grace. I think it's profitable to turn back to Romans 9, which we read. You can see it's a very biblical doctrine that Paul speaks very plainly. He speaks here in Romans 9 and verse 3, For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the sacrifice of God and the promises. Whoso are the fathers and of whom as concerns the flesh, Jesus came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. So there he's speaking about Israel according to the flesh. Many privileges were given to them. The Messiah came from them. They were given the law. They were given the promises and so forth. But then we read on in verse 6. Not as though the word of God had taken, hath taken none effect. For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but Isaac, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Now you read carefully this chapter, you read these verses and you read them again, what you're left with is simply this conclusion that the covenant of God in Christ, the gracious covenant of grace, it can be spoken of broadly and narrowly, broadly and narrowly. In the broad sense, it embraces all those who are set apart unto the visible people of God. We could say the visible church, those who are believers and unbelievers, yet separated unto the worship of God. To them was given the promises. To them was the adoption and so forth. But we also speak of it narrowly. Narrowly. In that sense, the promise, I will be a God to you and to your seed after you. It focuses narrowly. Not according to the children of the flesh, but the children of the spirit, of the promise. Not all Israel 
are truly Israel. You see, the true Israel in this sense, in the ultimate sense, those who are separated unto grace in Christ Jesus, those who are elected from before the foundation of the world, those who are in time and in history engrafted into Christ by the working of his spirit, These for whom Christ died. These for whom Christ rose again. These who are justified and sanctified and finally glorified. Only these are the true Israel of God. And so it is that you read the Westminster Standards, as I I mentioned, and it will surely speak of the covenant in its broad application. All of our children are in the covenant of grace, where they are brought into a believing Family, all those separated unto the preaching of the word and the sacraments, they are in the covenant. And yet we would also say in one sense, only those who receive the grace of the covenant are concerned therein. In the Westminster Larger Catechism again, question 30, doth God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? God doth not leave all men to perish in the estate of sin and misery into which they fell by the breach of the first covenant, commonly called the covenant of works, but of his mere love and mercy delivereth his elect out of it and bringeth them into an estate of salvation by the second covenant, commonly called the covenant of grace. With whom was the covenant of grace made? The covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam, and in him all the elect as his seed. How is the grace of God manifested in the second covenant? The grace of God is manifested in the second covenant in that he freely provideth and offereth to sinners a mediator and life and salvation by him. And requireth faith as the condition to interest them in him, promiseth and giveth his Holy Spirit to all his elect, to work in them that faith which all other saving with all other saving graces, and to enable them unto all holy obedience as the evidence of the truth of their faith and thankfulness to God, and as the way which he hath appointed them to salvation. Much of great profit there. But you see how the focal point of the covenant is the elect in Christ Jesus. Those to whom are given the grace of the covenant are in one sense truly those to whom it concerns. And so it's in this sense that uh, Mary can look and look at what Christ has done and what he is doing and what he shall do and coming to be the savior of his elect people and say, Israel has been helped, the true Israel of God. We read, of course, that in our own canons of Dort in this worship service, Election is not something speculative. It's not something that's designed to discourage, designed to immobilize people where they sit around just wondering, am I elect or am I not? No. Rather, as we 
trust in Christ and receive him who is the substance of the covenant of grace, we discover that in resting our souls upon him as our Savior, the sure and certain fruit of election. Election in us. For why else could someone believe in Christ Jesus and receive him but that they were appointed from the foundation of the world to receive that salvation? Why is it that you have people who are cast to and fro? They don't know whether it is that they're elect or not because they're not attending to the word of God. They're not obeying the clear commands of the Bible. But it doesn't mean election is irrelevant. What greater comfort is there in emboldening and strengthening the life of faith than knowing that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ? knowing that you are beloved before the foundation of the world. This is important. It is something that nurtures faith among God's people. And I would say this, of course, it is justly terrible and terrifying to those who are not believers. Why is it that it excites so much hatred among people who even claim themselves to be Christians. Well, because they cannot have a God who actually elects and chooses some to eternal life and passes over others. You cannot have the potter who, who fashions a people as clay for a glorious work of his grace and glory and uses others as a vessel of wrath. You cannot have all of human history and all of human existence and all of human choice and will simply subservient to the decree and will of God. That gives all the glory of God and none to me. Well, precisely so. But among those who have been taught by the Holy Spirit is a delight. It is not a burden. It is a joy. And it is fully commensurate with the doctrine of the covenant. Covenant and election, election and covenant. They cohere. There is a logic. There is a harmony. Not that one is emphasized to the expense of the other. They're both emphasized. They're both important. They're both necessary for our edification and instruction. But I mentioned this in the third place congregation, a holy calling. For you notice that simple word that is mentioned there by Mary in Luke 1. She mentions there, he hath helped his servant Israel. His servant Israel. And this is a common expression given unto the true Israel and the prophets, that they collectively are the servant of the Lord. A good example you find in Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 8. But thou, Israel, art my Servant Jacob, whom I have chosen or elected, Jacob, whom I have elected, the seed of Abraham, my friend, thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called thee from the chief men thereof and said unto thee, thou art my servant, I have chosen thee and not cast thee away. Fear thou not. For I am with thee, be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Let me just uh, conclude with a few applications from this fact that we are called to be the servant of the Lord. 
And first, I would simply make that most interesting point, not here that it speaks of us as the servants of the Lord, but we are all the servant of the Lord. As the people of God have the mind of Christ, and as we are brought to a saving knowledge of Christ, we will all serve him together. Why is it that the people of God are divided? Not because Christ is divided, but because sin must be divided from righteousness and error from truth and sanctification from the indwelling flesh that remains. What do I mean? Insofar as there is disunity among the people of God, it is because there is not a full surrender unto the will of God. Each one of us can feel them. That there is still remaining sin. There is still remaining lordship over ourselves, by ourselves, rather than the full surrender unto the lordship of Christ. But you've not so learned Christ. Where you've learned Christ, learned to trust in him, you are all of us, all of us brought unto one mind and one heart that we desire to glorify him. And we are all his servant. We find our identity as Christians among the collective people of God, the true Israel of the Lord, serving him with undivided loyalty and pure devotion. May that be what God instills in us this year, a pure hearted devotion unto him, and through that, a wholehearted unity to serve him as one man or one uh, one body of Christ. The second one, I would see, speak about this. Theology is practical. It is practical. I would not say that if you could remember every single argument from the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Catechisms or the Belgic Confession or the Canons of Door, that you have learned theology. There is one thing to speak it, it is another thing to live it. To have the truth of God so reign in your hearts that it radiates over every aspect of life. Israel is saved unto service. The church is the servant of the Lord. Are you serving the Lord? Are you loving one another? Are you loving your family? Are you loving the lost? Are you surrendering your time and your energy unto communion with God and the service of him in the world? It is this that the true theology of the Bible boils down to. Listen again to what we read from the larger catechism. How is the grace of God manifested in the second covenant? That is the covenant of grace. The grace of God is manifested in the second covenant in that he promiseth and giveth his Holy Spirit to all his elect and to work in them that faith with all other saving graces and to enable them unto all holy obedience as the evidence of the truth of their faith and the thankfulness of God and as the way which he hath appointed them to salvation. Your faith must be made evidence. Show your faith. Exercise your faith. Show it to be a living faith, a faith that bears forth good fruit. And where you find it to be lacking, then go unto Christ. Ask him, do I really have faith? Do I really love you, Lord? Do I really know you? And do not leave him until you find an answer. Well, here we found 
that Mary was, in her own way, a very accomplished theologian. She spoke simply, but she spoke truly. She spoke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and she spoke as one whose faith was nurtured by the promises of the covenant of grace. May this be our testimony as well. Amen.